2: We didn't do anything after Sandy Hook, where 21st graders were mowed down in their classrooms along with six of their teachers. And we didn't do anything after the Pulse nightclub massacre, where 49 people were killed and 58 others were wounded by a lunatic with an AR-15. And we didn't do anything after Las Vegas, where 58 concertgoers were killed and 851 people were injured, again, by a maniac with an AR-15. Maybe it'll be different this time. Because the victims, the survivors at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, are calling bullshit on the NRA and the president the NRA owns and the members of Congress the NRA owns.
3: The people in the government who are voted into power are lying to us. And us kids seem to be the only ones who notice and are prepared to call BS. Companies trying to make caricatures of the teenagers nowadays, saying that all we are is self involved and trend-obsessed, and they hush us into submissions when our message doesn't reach the ears of the nation, we are prepared to call BS. Politicians, politicians who sit in their gilded House and Senate seats, funded by the NRA, telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this, we call BS. We say that tough, They say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call B.S. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. We call B.S. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call B.S. No. They say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS. That us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS.
2: That was Emma Gonzalez, a 17-year-old Stoneman Douglas student speaking at a rally in Fort Lauderdale over this weekend. I want to say how impressed i am and how hopeful i've been made by the students at stoneman douglas they've called for a march on washington on march 24th go to march for our for info and they're demanding what 90 percent of americans say they want including a majority of gun owners mandatory background checks closing the gun show loophole a ban on weapons of war like the ar-15 something else that gives me hope many of these kids will be able to vote In the 2018 midterm elections, all of them will be able to vote in the 2020 presidential election. They're not just calling BS. Along with the new group, NoNRAMoney.org, they're planning to make taking money from the NRA as toxic as accepting money from NAMBLA. An unfair comparison, the North American Manboy Love Association, a powerless organization that exists mostly in the imaginations of anti-gay conservatives, and the National Rifle Association, an immensely powerful organization that owns Congress and controls the GOP. One supports child rape, the other supports child sacrifice, both oppose reasonable age limits. I'd say it's a fair comparison. And while we're tossing ideas about gun control onto the table, I wanted to throw this out there. Every time there's a mass shooting after Sandy Hook and San Bernardino and Orlando and Las Vegas and Virginia Tech and Aurora and Sutherland Springs and on and on, gun sales spike and gun stocks rally. These massacres, all these dead children and dead music fans and dead churchgoers, they are good for people in the gun business. They're so predictably good for the gun business that on some level, and because I like to think people are basically good, let's say on some deeply subconscious level, this has to function as an incentive. If you sell a gun to someone who looks like they might turn around and shoot up a high school or a church or a movie theater or a kindergarten classroom or a nightclub, you have to know on some level that everyone in your industry stands to profit. So, Here's an idea, my idea, and no, I haven't run it past a lawyer who specializes in that sweet spot where commercial law intersects with constitutional law, but I am tossing it out here anyway. When there's a mass shooting, which is defined as any shooting with four or more victims, every gun shop and gun range in the country has to close its doors for a month and all trading of gun company stocks are suspended for three months. If it's too soon to talk about gun control in the days and weeks immediately after a mass shooting, it's too soon to buy and sell guns or stocks in gun manufacturers in the wake of a mass shooting. This would remove the incentive to sell guns to just anyone. Because it wouldn't be just the lives of students and concert goers and movie theater patrons that would be on the line, but the livelihoods of gun merchants and the profits of gun manufacturers, too. And why shouldn't the people who profit from gun sales have some skin in this sick game, too? Some skin and some blood and bone and marrow and internal organs and brain tissue. So, yeah, anytime there's a mass shooting, gun stores, gun ranges padlocked, buying and selling gun manufacturers stock suspended. And a mass shooting, again, defined as any shooting with four or more victims, we have one of those in the United States every day day. So adopting my plan could result in the permanent padlocking of every gun store in America. Call it an intended consequence. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's, and we have two guests for you today on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast. Caitlin Doty from The Order of the Good Death joins us to talk about what you can and cannot put on your tombstone. It is relevant to a sex and relationship advice podcast, as you will see. And joining us on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at SavageLovecast.com. The Magnum is twice as long and has no ads. Go to SavageLovecast.com again, to subscribe, joining us on the Magnum, author Roxanne Gay, author of Hunger and Bad Feminist, is here to talk about her new advice column in The New York Times. All that coming up on today's show.
4: Hi, Dan. This is a 31-year-old queer poly cis woman from upstate New York, and I have a pretty big dilemma. The backstory is that I've been married for five years, uh, with my husband for almost ten. He has always been eager to have kids, and I have always been not terribly interested in the idea, uh, maybe at most. The subject has gotten more tense and urgent for him as we get older, and I just recently realized, flash, admitted to myself that I don't want children at all, and furthermore, that all of the maybes I have given have come from a place of guilt or pressure. Uh, feeling like I'm supposed to want them like, or that there's something wrong with me because I don't. Now I have to figure out how and when to have this conversation with him. To complicate matters, I worry about having the conversation because lately, like the last few years or so, any conversation I try and have with him that involves something he doesn't want to hear or feels is a criticism results in immediate anger and closes off any constructive conversation. This includes me trying to talk about feeling like he doesn't want to bother paying attention to what turns me on in bed or remember what are good things or bad things or ways to interact with me when I have an anxiety attack, which has been something I've dealt with the entirety of our relationship. Um, And no matter how calmly or neutrally I try to talk about these things, it's almost always anger or sometimes I get blank silence. I'm just not sure how to have such a big conversation with that.
2: A partner who reacts with anger when you attempt to have a conversation with them about something they might not want to hear when you have to tell them something that they might not want to hear, particularly about your sexual needs, sexual comfort, wants, desires, aspirations, goals, and they react angrily if it's not just what they want to hear, that's manipulative controlling behavior. They are attempting to prevent you from – Being who you are, doing what you want to do, informing them about your needs, that's crap. And if you can't have that conversation with that person without them reacting in anger, don't have that conversation with them. Send them a fucking letter, write them an email, or have a moderated conversation with that person with a third party where they're going to be less likely to reach for anger because there's a witness in the room who can broker the discussion, who can lead the discussion. Get thee to a couple's counselor. Go your partner who reacts angrily when your sex life comes up, when you want to give him points or tips, who is going to react angrily when you inform him that you have made a decision about children and it isn't the decision he would like you to make. Yeah. You want a referee in the room. He will be less likely to go to anger and attempt to manipulate you in front of someone who's going to be there to call him on that. Doesn't mean he won't get angry at you later. Doesn't mean he won't get angry at you after, but at least you'll be able to have a conversation with him that isn't short-circuited by rage, by manipulative, controlling, strategically deployed anger. And the time to have this convo with him is now, is soon. You're 31 years old. You guys have been together, married for five years. He wants kids. Not going to happen with you. So if that's going to happen for him, You need to tell him that he has to go find a new partner. You guys are poly. I've met poly couples who don't have kids together but have kids with their secondaries. So it is possible for him to have children with another partner. That could, of course, change the center of gravity, really shift the center of gravity away from you two as a couple and toward him as a parent, partner to is secondary and if he wants to be present in his children's lives on a daily basis perhaps he'll wind up living with that partner and you two could still be married still be a couple but you would become the secondary there's a lot more that's possible a lot more to discuss a lot more to negotiate in a poly relationship with this conflict than in a monogamous exclusive relationship with this conflict in an exclusive monogamous relationship with this conflict it's over you're going to have to go your separate ways you guys can have a conversation about staying together as you are now or in some different de-emphasized role that will allow him to have what he wants with someone else and allow you to have what you want still with him and you two still together if he can handle it. And you know what? I doubt he can. Because somebody who goes right to rage, right to anger, when their partner tells them something they do not want to hear, I don't think has the emotional maturity to be poly much less to be in a long-term relationship with one person and create a family with another.
5: Hey, Dan, this is Ahmad. I've been with my boyfriend for three years. Everything is great. I love him to death, but I've been having this one little problem. Uh, Whenever we want to have sex, or I want to have sex at least, uh, like after a long day or traveling, he would not let me unless he showers. Um, I asked him and he told me that I think it's, uh, he thinks that it's unhygienic, And he doesn't want me to uh, transfer that bacteria to me or him. When he said that, I felt dirty and uh, it kind of turned me off a little bit. And um, I don't know if I should talk to him about this or I should just let him be because that's what he's comfortable with and just, you know, keep my fetishes. I'm not sure if it's a fetish or I don't know if it's natural or not, but what should I do? Because sometimes I fantasize about, you know, smelling. Honestly, balls or something, you know? I'm sorry for, you know, being too disgusting, but this is who I am. Help.
2: I have some experience with balls, freshly washed balls and not so freshly washed balls. And it seems to me, if I recall correctly, that it doesn't take long for freshly laundered balls to return to stinky ball stage. It doesn't take long for the aroma of balls to reassert itself. That can happen in 10, 15, 20 minutes. So you may be able to work around your boyfriend's bat shittery about having to take a shower and scrub himself. Silkwood style, 40-year-old pop culture reference there for the kids. Silkwood style before you two are intimate. Just extend the foreplay. Roll around for a little bit. Turn the heat up in the house. So that he sweats a little bit and his natural scent will reassert itself provided he's not using incredibly stinky soaps or dousing himself in cologne. And if he's a germaphobe or a phobe, I hope he's not dousing himself in cologne. That shit is expensively marketed rat piss. And if he's afraid of the natural scents and pheromones and aromas and sweat that his body produces, I hope he's not drenching himself in expensively marketed rat piss but you like man smells or you like how your man smells just delay. You can passively resist his bat shittery by telling him to go take a shower because you want to have sex and then telling him, oh wait, let's finish this three and a half hour Netflix special first and let him marinate on the couch a little bit until his natural sense reassert themselves. Good luck.
6: Hi, Dan.
7: So about a month ago, I found out that my boyfriend Of five months is really into like garter belts. So I've never bought lingerie before, but like a week ago, I decided I was just going to buy the lingerie and then just like figure out what to do about it later. But now that I'm thinking about like when to bring it out or like when to tell them about it or like when to wear it, I'm just realizing that I don't, I'm not super excited by the idea. Like, I don't know how to feel sexy in it. I don't, I can't like it. Like I've never fantasized about me wearing lingerie. So I don't really know what to do, but I want to do this thing and I want it to be fun and sexy. And I already bought the things. So I'm just wondering what your advice to me would be about just trying to feel good in
6: it.
2: My advice would be to wear the garter belt and hose yourself once or twice under your jeans or skirt. If you go to work without surprising the boyfriend with it, just wear it for your own comfort. So you can see what it's like to wear these kinds of undergarments and to do it just for yourself, just as an experiment without the heightened stakes of and now I'm going to give my boyfriend his ultimate fantasy as I wear these garments that I've never worn before and I'm probably not very comfortable in or at least the first time I put them on, I'm not going to be very comfortable in them. And I used to do drag a long time ago. I wore garter belts. I wore hose. You can get used to it pretty quick. And I was a dude. I got used to it pretty quick and I got comfortable in them pretty quick. But it wasn't sexual for me. And I think that element of his sexual expectations puts an additional layer of pressure on you because you're not wearing a garter belt and hose. You're performing the garter belt and hose So the first few times you wear them. Don't wear them as the performance. Just wear them to see what it feels like to have them on for your own physical comfort. And then when you want to wear them for him, have him put them on you. And in that moment, hopefully if things go right, You will tap into his excitement, that his excitement, his arousal at seeing you in these garments will cause you to take pleasure not in the wearing of the garments because you could give a shit but in his pleasure and that's really something that everybody should be able to do for their partner. Everybody's not going to have perfect overlap on turn-ons and kinks and pleasures and what they like. People shouldn't do things that leave them traumatized. People shouldn't do anything that has them curled up in the fetal position on the floor afterwards, sobbing in the bathroom. But for our partners, particularly in sexually exclusive relationships, we should make an effort to meet their reasonable needs. And putting on a certain kind of underpants for your partner, not an unreasonable ask, not something that I don't want to say we should hesitate to do, but something that we should work our way up to doing with a partner. It's fine to hesitate. It's fine to take a moment. And that's what I advise you do at the top of this response. Take a moment, wear them for yourself, wear them at a time. You're not going to see him, but when the time comes, wear them for him. And if he is super excited and super turned on by you in these garments, bask in that, look at what you're doing with and for him with an assist from these garments and take pleasure in his pleasure. And hopefully the pleasure you take in his pleasure will help you bridge that discomfort gap that you're feeling, because these do nothing for you. Hopefully his turn on, seeing him excited, hopefully that does something for you.
6: Hi,
1: Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female from Canada, and I just have a question. Um, I'm wondering how my, – my boyfriend was recently in a snowboarding accident, and so he's housebound for probably the next six months. It was a really bad accident. And I'm just wondering how we can keep desire and passion alive in that time. Because we had a really exciting, fun relationship as it normally is in the beginning. And I'd just like that to continue. But it's hard to do when the house's down for two months and he can't really move.
2: You can't do the things that you were doing But you can talk about the things that you've done and you can talk about the things that you're going to do once your boyfriend is back on his feet. And snowboarder to snowboarder, my heart goes out to your boyfriend. But your sex life is going to be diminished over the next six months. It can't be what it was before the accident. Hopefully it will be what it was and better, again, once he's recovered, once he's healed. And you can look forward to that by talking about dirty talking about it. Lay with him. He's housebound. He's in bed. Lay with him. Masturbate together. Get some vibrators and toys. He can't jump around the room right now. You can't have athletic sex. But you can experiment with vibrators, perhaps even insertables and insertable vibrators to give each other pleasure, to stimulate each other's genitals and engage in acts of mutual masturbation. Maybe you can ride him a little bit when he's feeling a little bit better and he can be inside you. But If he's been in a bad snowboarding accident and is housebound and right now for the next two months is flat on his back in bed, yeah, it can't be what it was, but it can be that again. It won't be that again. If you become resentful over the next six months because it isn't what it was, then it never will be again. If you stew in resentment, do what you can do. Use the biggest sex organ that you both have, which is between your ears, not your legs, as the saying goes, and talk up a storm about all the hot shit you did and all the hot shit you're going to do once he's back on his feet, as you two masturbate together.
6: Hey, Dan. This is a 30-year-old in the Midwest. Um, I have a question when it comes to parenting and being sex positive. I have a 10-year-old, and he has a cell phone. And I routinely will check his search history, which maybe is my first mistake. The other day when I was checking, I found a recent search for Pornhub. Well, I was a little bit surprised as I feel like ten is a little young. I was initially more freaked out about the fact that I was afraid that he may be sharing these videos with his friends, which would possibly get him into trouble. Um, I did hear about some children ended up getting in trouble with sharing some explicit photos resulting in some charges being placed on one of the children. So my question for you is, how do I address this with him without A, embarrassing him, and B, with really driving home the point that I'm not upset that he's looking at porn, but I want him to understand kind of the ramifications if he were to share that with
2: kids of his own age i I just want to say this first because i have a feeling i'm about to go off on a really long rant about a lot of the issues that you touch on in your call there are phones out there that don't have the internet on them there are phones out there that don't have cameras on them your 10 year old if your 10 year old is going to Pornhub on his internet capable phone yeah maybe your 10 year old isn't old enough or responsible enough to have a phone with the internet So get him a different kind of phone. That is something that you can do. And a phone is not a constitutional right. And you can take your kid's phone away. We frequently did that when our kid was young. There's no way to have this convo with your kid about porn, even if he wasn't looking at porn, without embarrassing your kid. And you do need to have these embarrassing conversations with your kids about porn. And almost all of them are going to find it and are going to see it. We give them all telephones and they carry the internet around with them in their pockets. They also carry... Porn production studios around with them in their pockets and kids have been arrested and charged by runaway idiotic prosecutors all over the country for possessing or distributing child pornography. When the pictures that they had or shared were of themselves and these laws, child porn laws are designed to protect children from being exploited, not by themselves, but by predatory adults and to throw children in jail to slap a sex offender label on a child and really destroy that kid's life because that kid took a picture of their own junk and shared it with their own boyfriend or girlfriend is insane and it happens constantly and you should bring that to your child's attention the danger of course is saying to your kid never do this Puts it in your kid's head to do this taboo transgressive thing that freaks out and pisses off the adults. But you still have to risk that reaction by acquainting them with the potential horrible consequences. Not to be sex panicky about it, but when the potential consequences, if the worst should happen, are so severe, so life-altering as to be in all practical purposes, life Ending, and there have been cases where kids who were facing charges that might put them on sex offender registries committed suicide. You have to err on the side of instilling a little bit of panic in your kid. But this is just you saw porn. You saw Pornhub on his phone. There's a whole other conversation you need to have with him about that, which is all right, so you saw some porn. Sorry, I invaded your privacy, but you know what? You're 10 years old. You don't have a right to privacy. And I, as a parent, have a responsibility to monitor where you're going on the internet, where you're going on the phone that I gave you and that I pay for and that I can take from you and stop paying for if you're going to misuse it. And I understand that you're curious about sex and it's completely natural to be curious about sex and you will see more porn in the next few years. I have no doubt. And here's the thing. And then you have to tell your kid that porn distorts, that porn bears as much resemblance to sex as action movies bear to daily life life is not fast and the furious that's not what it's like when your dad and i drop you off at school that's not how people drive and porn is often the fast and the furious of human sexuality it's a distortion it's an exaggeration a lot of what you see is performance and played up it's kabuki theater sex And you need to put that seed in your kid's head so they watch porn with a critical eye. So they watch porn not expecting that that's what the sex that they're going to have will look like. And you need to have a conversation about consent. Because a lot of porn, adults watch porn, and we understand that the performers are consenting adults who had conversations before they filmed the scene about what would happen. Those conversations are not included. Where the pre-negotiation about Everything that's going to happen is worked out between the performers. And sometimes porn will show us someone being taken because people fantasize about that. They want to see their fantasies brought to life. But there was a negotiation. And you need to put those seeds in your kid's head. And with boys, you need to talk to your kid. You need to talk to your sons about misogyny, which is kind of a big word for a 10-year-old boy. Maybe just go with anger that there is porn, a lot of it that is created for men who are attracted to these women, desire them and are angry at them and are mad at them because they don't feel like they could ever access them because they don't think that these women would ever give them the time of day. And so they want access to their bodies. They want to be able to look, but they know on some level they'll never be able to touch and they want to see those women punished. And so there's a lot of anger and rage, male anger and rage that is in porn. And you say to your kid, don't succumb to the anger and the rage because then you'll be that guy that women don't want to touch. You'll be that guy who's mad. And that's not attractive. It's repulsive. And it becomes a self-reinforcing, self-destructive, adult sex life disabling problem. And you don't want to succumb to that. So look out for anger and porn. And if they understand what it is, why it's there, they're less likely to be sucked into that rage. (sighs) Sorry, that was a long rant. Take your kid's phone away.
7: Hey, uh, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a long, long, long-time listener. I just saw my first Hump show this weekend, which is phenomenal, with my awesome GGG boyfriend, who I love very much. And just now, we had a bit of a quandary arise. So we've been together for about six months. Early on in our relationship, um, he made it very clear that he really enjoys eating ass and has been joyfully eating my ass ever since. Um, He also expressed an interest in me doing the same for him, and I told him promptly that I will go to my grave and they will mark my headstone with the words, she never ate at. I have stood my ground thus far, and around that same time when we had that initial conversation, he listed off a few of his exes who had performed that uh, act upon him. And I had sort of tossed that around in my head for a bit. I definitely like to be the best for my lover, and it kind of did a number on my head. His most recent ex in particular is somebody I, I'm not very fond of. And it kind of messed with me because I didn't want her to have done this thing for him that I hadn't done. Again, i stood my ground. But today he revealed that she had never actually done that, that it had been a lie, and that he had been attempting to sort of manipulate me into doing this thing for him that I was not comfortable with. I feel good about the fact that I held my boundaries. But I'm trying to gauge how big of a deal this is. On the one hand, I feel like it's not that big of a deal because I stood my ground. But at the same time, if I hadn't, if I had gone ahead and done that because I felt this sort of inferiority thing and then found out that it was a lie, I would be totally, I mean, it would be a violation. It would feel um, like coercion and it would feel like uh, I had done that thing under false pretenses. So. I'm not going to break up with him. It doesn't feel like a DTMFA situation. He's wonderful in so many other ways. Um, It was very early on in our relationship when this happened. I know the white lie clause, according to you, my emotional and relationship guru. Dan, help.
2: How big a deal is this that he told you this lie about his ex-girlfriend eating his ass? I guess it's a deal. Obviously, it's not a big enough deal that you're thinking about breaking up with him. You're not going to break up with him. You've already concluded it's not a big enough deal to break up with him over, but it is a deal. And maybe it's a big enough deal that he needs to apologize to you for manipulating you with that lie or attempting to manipulate you with that lie and very nearly getting your tongue into his ass on the strength of that lie because you have this competitive spirit and you didn't want his ex girlfriend to have done something for him or provided him with a pleasure that you haven't provided him with. So it very nearly worked. And then you wouldn't have been able to have she never ate ass on your tombstone because you almost ate his ass and he needs to apologize and he needs to promise you if you guys are going to stay together that he's not going to tell you lies about his previous relationships, past experiences in an effort to get you to do things with him. That you need to have a clean and honest negotiation with him about the sexual adventures that you two are going to go on together. All that said about eating ass, I was curious about your desire, your your, your life goal, your aspiration to have she never ate ass On your tombstone, and I was curious as to whether that's something that people could do, something that explicit on Tombstone, to help answer that question. Joining us by phone, Caitlin Doty, host of Ask a Mortician on YouTube, author of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and the new book, From Here to Eternity. Caitlin, thank you for jumping on the phone.
8: I was told that I would be able to answer the ass-eating question. Uh, oh, you can start I'm, I'm there. i discover that, that <laughs> you're only having me here to talk about tombstone etiquette.
2: If, if we can talk about ass-eating. Let's talk about ass-eating first. I don't want to pigeonhole you just as someone who can only talk about
8: No, no. I don't know. I'm kidding. I don't know that I'm – I mean I don't know that I want people to know whether I'm qualified to talk about ass-eating or not. (laughs) No stigma. No shame about ass-eating. Yeah, exactly. No stigma, no shame. Everyone should be able to talk. Like death, it's a hard topic. Everyone should be able to have an open discussion about it.
2: All right. So the death angle here, the tombstone angle – could you have something on a tombstone that was that sexually explicit? Can you get like, I had a big cock, it was a good ride on your tombstone or she never ate ass on a tombstone? <laughs>
8: My instinct is no, just because especially in America, cemeteries are privately run for the most part and they get to decide the aesthetic and the vibe and what goes on headstones. So, for example, there was a huge controversy a couple years ago at this historic cemetery where for some reason one of the employees allowed a veteran to get big SpongeBob SquarePants tombstones in this beautiful historic cemetery and then of course the head of the cemetery comes in and goes uh no you can't have big giant spongebob square pants headstones in the cemetery riots happen not real riots but riots among the family everyone's upset you do see a lot of really snappy fun interesting headstones but i think eating ass would not make it past the cemetery
2: etiquette board so maybe you could have that stitched into your burial shroud and take exactly. it to the grave, literally take it to the grave.
8: Exactly. You could have it written on your casket. Not a lot of people are are buried in America anymore. That, that number is going down. You're probably more likely to be cremated. So in that case, you can certainly get an urn for your home that says that very broadly across it.
2: She never ate. A, and someday your grandkids or your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren will look at that urn and think, Great grandma never ate ass.
8: Exactly. And, you know, who knows how that will age? That will either be like a feminist sentiment
2: or like, oh, grandma, what a prude you were. Yeah, here in 2046, everybody, <laughs> ass is all that's left because of the environmental degradation <laughs> of, of the Earth. Have. ass you is know, all we have to eat.
8: The beauty of the urn is that you could get an actual ass shaped urn if you want. <laughs> you know, the urn just lives in your home. So whatever you want you know to do with that is is up to you and your loved ones.
2: I'm a morbid dude and whenever I travel uh in the states wherever I go, I visit cemeteries and I like to look at tombstones. I like to read what's on them. I'm always really interested when I find a tombstone that has a kind of enigmatic or revealing or intriguing poem or short expression. And with fewer and fewer people being buried and with so many people who are still being buried just getting those little flat boring marble like Mm-hmm. shoebox lid shaped yeah. plaques level to the grass. Like I worry about, you know, tombstones a hundred years from now, from now, aren't going to be very interesting or even really exist at all. Sometimes it's a little nerving how often my husband asks me how I would <laughs> like him to dispose of my remains. And I always say, I want to be buried, I want a big casket, I want to be embalmed, and I want a tombstone that sticks up out of the ground that says something on it. Funny or interesting or intriguing. Because I want to be that I, I want that tombstone that somebody reads in a hundred years from now and goes, huh, what was that about? Who the fuck was he? To be mine. Is that weird? No, not at all.
8: Well that I think he asks you so much because your husband and I follow each other on Instagram. And so <laughs> I am always I am always thinking about Tom of Finland, and he is always thinking about death and death of those he loves. Um so good for him for for having that conversation with you. But no, I don't think so at all. And I think that but the problem is is that we're already in that place. Already the American style of death is those flat you know, just rectangle, flat to the ground. So boring. One tiny phrase on it. It's really boring. I agree.
2: It's a cemetery designed for the convenience of the lawnmower.
8: Exactly. Yep. That's and that you you think you're being you know funny, but that's a hundred percent true. That's why it is done. It's it's more convenient for the landscapers to mow right over, and it's much harder to have these big beautiful monuments or unique headstones. But I think unless we're going to have cemeteries like that, that what is what is the use of the modern cemetery at all if you're not going to have these unique, beautiful monuments that say sassy
2: things? I want unique, beautiful monuments to say sassy things. And you know that whole like we have to redesign the cemetery and monuments for the convenience of the lawnmower just presupposes that it has to look like a gorgeous trimmed lawn everywhere. Why not let it be an overgrown kind of semi-wild space where the grass is uneven and there are bushes and trees and flowers and shrubs growing up? around tombstones. Why does everything have to look like a fucking golf course? You're preaching to
8: the choir with me. That that's I will say that one of the biggest innovations we have right now is a green burial cemetery or is a conservation cemetery where it's exactly that way. Someone will be buried and there'll be a pile of mulch over them where you can actually tell where the body was. God forbid we know that they are actual dead bodies buried in a cemetery. Some of the headstones will be pieces of driftwood that have been carved into something or or something that's a natural plant or a bush. So you can live on maybe not with a sassy saying, but with a tree that you like or a bush that you like. So you can contribute your particular touch or particular interest in another way. That's not necessarily a marble headstone.
2: I want a marble headstone. I want something that sticks out of the ground that says, uh, Google Santorum or something that then people right, right, go home right. and you like...
8: Maybe, I mean, you could also, you were potentially up for like a, you know, statue in the town square. Pull <laughs> down, down a Confederate statue and put up a Dan Savage.
2: Uh, yeah, I think that would be met with a little bit of pushback from the far left and far right, but it's it's nice to think about. We have we have gone far afield in, in our conversation from the whole <laughs> ass-eating point of the question, but I, I was a won't little anybody,
8: Won't anybody remember the ass-eating in this? <laughs> Do you think there's ass-eating in the afterlife? Do you believe in an afterlife? I I don't believe in an afterlife, but I'd like to think that's one of the things that happens there.
2: If there's an afterlife worth living, there's ass-eating in that afterlife, at least in my opinion.
8: Yeah, that could also go on something. Maybe you should just get coffee mugs for now. Tea towels. Tea towels, yeah.
2: Caitlin Doty, author of the new book, From Here to Eternity, author of the tremendously uh, wonderful best-selling book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Check out her new book. And to find out more about Caitlin, her work, and to learn more about what's going on in the death movement, funeral movement, what do you call it?
8: Death positive movement actually
2: has really caught on as of late. But, uh, yeah, good death movement. The good death movement. Go to orderofthegooddeath.com. Caitlin, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us.
8: Thank
9: you, Dan. Hi, Dan, 26-year-old bi girl from Canada. So this question isn't really about me, but it's about my friend's niece who's 16 years old. She recently told her aunt, who's my best friend, that she has a crush on one of our friends who is 26-ish, 26, 27. So she's 16, he's 27, 27. I found out that he also has a little bit of a crush on her. The legal age consent where I am is 16 years old, and I don't know what to tell her. Um, her aunt and husband are kind of freaking out because like, the guy that she has a crush on is also one of their best friends, and they're trying to protect her. But I, I honestly can't see anything... That is super wrong situation. Like Logically, emotionally, I'm like, stay away from each other for a bit. Maybe in the future something will happen, but for right now, I, I can't logically say that I can see anything wrong with what's happening. Is there anything I can tell her or her aunt to smooth over the situation a little bit? I actually have no idea what to do.
2: So the 16-year-old girl we're talking about here is your friend's niece. She is your... Friends, sisters, daughter. So you're pretty far removed, it seems to me, from this issue, from this problem. If you want to weigh in, if you feel obligated to say something or intervene, I don't see how you're obligated. You could just walk the fuck away from this and let this 16-year-old girl's immediate family handle this. You could say, you know, there are lots of examples out there of adults who had their first relationships with age-inappropriate partners who weren't harmed and are fine. A lot of people out there when they were 17, 16, 18 years old dated people or were attracted to people or developed crushes on people that were older. And those relationships with those age differences, they squick us out. And I think they squick us out for legitimate reasons because the odds of that 16, 17, or 18-year-old who's dating that 25, 26-year-old being harmed, being exploited, in the relationship are higher. doesn't mean that everybody who's 16, 17, 18, who's ever dated somebody who was in college or a little bit older was destroyed or even harmed by it. It's not always the case, but it is the case that harm is likelier in that relationship than in a more age appropriate relationship that the older or more experienced person could take advantage of the younger, less experienced person. And as that's the case, It's not irrational for the family to intervene and discourage this relationship. I can have the Romeo and Juliet effect of making the relationship more attractive and more desirable, particularly for the younger person. They say our love is forbidden. They say our love isn't real. That reaction, a lot of teenagers have that reaction when their families say, you may not pursue anything with this person. So it might be wiser for the intervention if and when it comes to be focused on the 26-year-old to go to the 26 year old and say dude you don't want to fuck even though above the legal age of consent legal but wrong you don't want to fuck or encourage this girl to obsess about you so you need to like back the fuck off teenage crushes they have a way of flaming out they burn hot but they burn fast she still has the crush on you at 18 well maybe then But now, 16, sophomore or junior in high school, yeah, no. The odds of exploitation, even without malicious conscious intent, too high. And you don't want to be that 26-year-old who has the reputation of fucking high school girls. That's a bad look for a 26-year-old man. If you are indeed star-crossed lovers, cursed by this age difference, and destined to be together, that will still be true when she is 22 or 20. And you are pushing 30. And I say this to someone who's in a relationship with a seven and a half year age gap. Which comes close to the age gap here. But I met my husband when he was 23. Not when he was 16. So yeah, say to that guy. Maybe you approach that guy. Since you're a little removed. Maybe the remove I mentioned at the top of my response. Make you the right person to have this conversation with him. Because you don't have skin or blood in the game. The way your friend, the aunt, does. You say to him, dude. Come on, don't be the 26-year-old fucking the 16-year-old. Don't be that guy. And if you're destined to be together, that'll be true when she's 20. If it's true when she's 16 that you are destined to be together, then wait. Then you're the guy who did the right thing. Then you're the guy who let the high school girl work through the crush, get out of high school, get herself to college, date a few other boys. And if you're who she's supposed to be with... You can revisit that in four or five years. Believe it or not, I am not the only professional advice columnist on the planet or advice podcaster on the planet. And every once in a while, we like to invite somebody else in the advice racket, some other advice columnist, advice podcaster, onto the show for a little segment we call Second Opinion. Joining me by phone for this installment of Second Opinion, Roxanne Gay, an American writer, professor, editor, and commentator, New York Times bestselling author of Bad Feminist and The New Hunger. Also now an advice columnist, author of Ask Roxanne in the New York Times. Hey, Roxanne, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today.
10: Thanks for having me, Dan.
2: So I saw that you started an advice column and that you're a fan of the genre, and I was not floored. Like I, I, I follow you on Twitter. I'm a big fan. I see how broad uh, and, and diverse your interests are and your intellectual interests. But it's really rare for someone of your stature to admit to liking the advice column genre and, and to then take it up at your, this stage of your career. What inspired you? I, lo- I just love advice. And <laughs> I just love reading advice columns.
10: It's The kinds of things that people ask questions about. I mean, I judge it, I guess. I just always think, really? You're really torn up about that? Wow. And other times it's just a window into the kinds of problems other people are dealing with. And it can be, I think there's a lot of humility in seeing just how hard life can be for so many people. And, uh, I appreciate that not not that they're suffering but I you know sometimes it helps you to put your own life into perspective when you see what other people are dealing
2: with uh, yeah I think that's and, really true a lot of people will you know sneer at the genre and say it's just rubbernecking or voyeurism but it actually is really helpful not even to the person or not only for the person asking the question that's being answered but for others for that kind of perspective also it can induce empathy yeah
10: absolutely it certainly I think You know, I definitely think it makes me think more about the lives of others and the the kinds of things that people are dealing with. And it allows me to have more patience with myself and also with my friends and loved ones. And so I just, I don't know. And it's also the voyeurism of Mm -hmm. advice columns It's just seeing the kinds of things that people are willing to share with advice columnists. Uh, I find it to be
2: appealing. I I certainly think voyeurism is part of it, but sometimes people come for the voyeurism and then accidentally learn a thing or two or remember something that you wrote years later. This frequently happens to me. Your column is brand new. It started December 30th uh, in the New York Times opinion pages. But this sometimes happens to me where someone will write me five years later and say, I found myself in this situation and I remembered something that you wrote to someone in a similar situation Mm -hmm. five years ago when I was just reading your column for kicks and it popped into my head and it was so helpful. So there's some part of our brain that when we hear people talking about their problems and their romantic problems and their sex problems, some part of our brain, when we read the advice or hear advice files it away in case we need it later and it can just leap out at the right moment.
10: Mm-hmm. I, I, there's like all sorts of things. I think we just file away and uh, you never know when you're going to need them. And uh, that's, Really interesting and really cool. And I've been reading advice columns forever. When I was a kid, I used to read um, Dear Abby and um, Ann Landers. As did I. And it was just these like little slices of life. And their advice was always just so practical. And, uh, and so down to earth. And then, of course, there are other advice columns where I just disagree. And I'm like, oh, that's shitty advice. What the fuck?
2: Billy Graham's advice that. column. Have you ever read Billy Graham's advice for,
10: I have not.
2: Oh, it's a shit show! I didn't
10: even know <laughs> he had. An, oh my I'm god! And like, oh, really? Hmm.
2: Yeah, well, he, you know, he's he's no longer with us, but he wrote an advice column was syndicated in a lot of newspapers for a long time. And holy Christ, it, I didn't think it was very helpful. Maybe that. Maybe I'm biased as a like an atheist homosexual, but I, I just didn't mm-hmm. think that people should be turning to Billy Graham for a relationship and sex advice. Call me
1: biased. I
10: couldn't agree more. I just feel like that's the last stop. There's nothing good that's going to come from Billy Graham.
2: So you are, were a fan. Uh, you grew up reading Abby and Ann Landers, as did I in the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, did you read anybody else? Because I was also a fan of Xavier Hollander, who wrote Ask the Madam in, of all things, Penthouse Magazine in the 70s and 80s, which you know, I, as a little gay kid, would steal my older brother's Penthouse and read it for the articles. And I really tapped into Xaviera's, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her first name, uh, Xaviera's advice and, and her take on sex, which was just so pragmatic, very much like Ann Landers. Uh, was there anyone else you read besides Ann and Abby that comes to mind now that you're writing your own advice column?
10: Uh, not when I was younger, but in recent years, I've I've read a lot of Dear Prudy, uh, mm-hmm. especially. I love it now that Mallory Orford is doing it, but before I used to hate reading it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> poor Emily Yofi, you hate red. poor Emily Yofi yeah. Prudence? Yeah,
10: because she was so provincial and so conservative in her outlook, which is absolutely her right. Mm-hmm. But um, it just drove me batshit. And I couldn't take it. But you and couldn't so not read I it either. Would just go back for more.
2: Right. That's what. Like, I, that's what, what I said. What
10: crazy thing is she going to say?
2: That's how I got an advice column. I met somebody starting a newspaper and said, "Oh, you should have an advice column because everybody hates them, but everybody reads them." You see that Q and A format? You can't not read it. Absolutely. I actually, I really thought over the ten years that Emily Opie was writing Prudence. That she came around on a lot of things because her ideas about the way sex and relationships ought to work encountered a lot of you know, pushback in the aggregate from you know people talking about the way it actually did work in their lives. And in the end, she was saying things like, if you only cheated once and you're not going to do it again, keep your mouth shut. You don't have to tell your partner about that. And that was a sea change and I was really happy to see it because I'd been saying that all along.
10: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the only common sense. I'm one of the only, but one of the rare common sense moments. Like, yeah, you know what? Keep it to yourself. This this need to unburden is so overrated. Like, Mm -hmm. there are things I don't want to know. I just, I I just recently
2: (laughs) let's come to an accord about that because I recently read about this and got some trouble for it. You know, somebody cheated. They only cheated once. That you know, they they stared into the abyss and they're not going to go there again. Lesson learned. Uh, and they are on the rack about whether they tell their partner or not, whether they confess, mm-hmm. whether they're honest. And I think sometimes the loving thing to do is to shut your fucking mouth and spare that person that information, the burden of having that information, and let them believe that you're better than you are, just as you believe that they're better than they are. And in, in that mutual like belief, you guys actually have to struggle to be better people than you actually are. And and let it alone. And people get really angry because people have it in their heads that unless it's complete honesty all the time, unless you conduct your relationship like it's a deposition and Robert Mueller is in the room, that you're a shitty spouse. And I don't think that's true.
10: I, I just don't think that's true. I think that good people do bad things all the time. And. I, I, I believe in honesty. I really do. But I think you can be honest without being 100 percent honest. Like you do not need to tell your partner the truth, like the, the painful truth about everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, like, why would you hurt someone like that when, if you know it's going to hurt them?
2: Well, the pushback is going to be, well, why did you cheat if you're worried about hurting your partner? Like two wrongs don't make a right. You don't have to compound the, the hurt by, by, by inflicting it. Yeah, you did something wrong. Exactly.
10: Like, why make it worse? Like, and because as someone who has been cheated on, and uh, I don't need to know, because when you tell me, then I obsess. Mm
11: -hmm. Like,
10: who was it? And for how long? And what did you do? And so then it just ruins everything. Like, I would prefer not to know unless I find out and you haven't told me. It's complicated. It is complicated. But I also... I just think if you're a good person and you cheat, like you should just not be messy about it. Like don't mm-hmm. leave your laptop open with, with um, direct messages to the person you're cheating on me with.
2: The asterisk is always you keep your mouth shut unless there's a realistic chance that they're going to find out through a third party yeah. or it's going to come out. You want to get in front of it if they're going to find out, if, they're, yeah. if it's just inevitable, you tell. It comes from you, not Absolutely. from a sister, not from a coworker, not from a neighbor, you but if they're never going to find out, you're uh, you know, on the other side of the world and something happened, you shut your mouth. And you also tell yourself, if my partner's on the other side of the world sometime and something happens, I'm not going to freak out, not going to get upset. Yeah.
10: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just think shit happens. Like if you are in Vegas and you're having a blast and something happens, I mean, I would not be thrilled. Like, you know, I prefer my partner not cheat. But if it happens, I mean, we're all human.
2: Can I share one last Anne Landersism with you before uh, we take a couple of calls together? Yes, you can. After her death, I went to the auction of her uh, estate uh, with, with Margot Howard, her daughter's permission. I wrote to her and said, I don't want people to read disrespect into this because I write a filthy advice column. And your mother wrote, Your mother was Ann Landers. And she said, No, 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 go, go, go. And I bought her desk. The desk she wrote, Ask Ann Landers at for 40 years is in my office. I write Savage Love at it. And I also bought a whole bunch of her awards. Because I thought no one's ever going to give me an award for my filthy advice column. If I ever want an advice column award, I'm going to have to buy Ann Landers and, and did. And I have like 30 different Ann Landers, plaques and trophies and her desk. And I write my column at her desk. And I'm very proud of that. No way. That's so
10: random and <laughs> awesome.
2: I kept it in the business. You know, that, that does-
10: is really cool.
2: I thought it was going to be some little, like, because she had this grand apartment on Michigan Avenue in this grand old Bell air building. And I thought it was going to be this beautiful little French desk with spindly legs. And no, it's like this giant Jason Robarbs, all the president's men tank of a mid 40s, 50s desk uh, that weighs 8 million pounds and is in my office right now. And I love it. It's my prized possession. That's really badass. <laughs> so uh, let's take a couple of questions together, shall we? Yes.
12: Hi Dan, a 26 year old woman calling from Canada. I recently found out that my mother has been diagnosed with some pretty aggressive cancer, uh, not a great situation. And my boyfriend of two years who lives with me basically freaked out and left. He's been staying with his friends for the last week I'm trying to coordinate uh, care for my mother, getting her to where I live because she's rural and I'm in a metropolitan center and she can get much better care here. I want her to come live with me. Basically, I just don't know how to deal with this guy. I'm trying to give him space to feel his feelings. He keeps saying that um, he's been unhappy for a while, but I have a hard time believing that because things have really been good. So... I don't know what to do. We keep talking and I don't feel like we're getting anywhere. I also don't really want to divert too much of my attention to this situation because, God forbid, I would look back and regret any time that I didn't spend diverting attention to my mom. So if you can maybe give some insight as a man, I guess my question is, what would cause somebody to basically freak out and decide they don't want to support their partner during their only time of need thus far?
2: So. You go first, Roxanne. Uh,
10: He's
12: an asshole.
10: And I mean, it's not complicated. Sometimes we fall short. People fall short when they're supposed to stand up and do the right thing. Uh, And it it seems like there's probably other issues. And you may not have been aware of them, but you're aware of them now. Mm -hmm. He's not coming back. If he's not going to stand with you now, he's not coming back. It's over. And so the question you should be asking is, how do I move on from here and support my mother in her time of need and also make sure that my social circle and my emotional support group, like whoever those people are, are giving me what I need
2: she asks, during this time of need. She asks, I, I think, me for insight as a man into her boyfriend's behavior is mm-hmm. if there's something male about this or if that picks the lock and he's just an mm-hmm. asshole and assholes come in. All, all along, every point in the gender spectrum, there are assholes, and you know, My feeling wasn't well. As a man, a man would have this reaction because a man fears death or whatever ever kind of like Mars Venus bullshit people might trot out. He's just a fucking asshole, and it's over. And I worry about you know I get calls like this often from women who are being treated badly by someone. And rather than sit with that and, and wonder, and, you know, and get angry, she doesn't sound angry at all. She's trying to project herself into her, into his experience. She's trying to empathize and, uh, and come mm-hmm. to an understanding of why he's feeling this way or why he's behaving this way, as if that will, if she can name it and articulate it and bring it to his attention, that he'll stop being an asshole and stop running. And that's not true. That's not going to happen. You can have some, three-dimensional chess understanding of his behavior and he's still going to be a fucking asshole and it's over
10: correct there's no explanation and i and i understand that impulse to find like a reason like why is this happening why is he doing this why is she doing this there is no explanation sometimes other than he's an asshole or she's an asshole or they're an asshole it just is what it is and that doesn't make it easy but i think that Spending all that emotional energy just trying to figure it out. Like maybe he has some deep, dark secret or maybe he lost his mother this way. No, there's no reason. There's literally no reason. Anyone who would walk out on you when you need the most is not someone who deserves you at all.
2: And anyone who walks out on you when you need the most was probably eyeing the door a long time ago and the crisis, whatever it is, called the question. If I stick around for this, that's going to telegraph to my partner that I'm in it for the long haul, that I'm really committed and he wasn't, and isn't, and he's out mm-hmm. the door. And, and and my heart goes out to the caller. You know, mother has cancer, and the caller is doing all the right things. You know, she's helping her mother, reaching out to her mother, moving her mother to town so she can get the best care and treatment. And I really think let mom be your focus and shuck this guy off psychologically, Absolutely. romantically, shrug him off.
10: I couldn't agree more. And I, I too, I really feel for her. I can't. I guess I can't imagine it, but I just think it's devastating when someone doesn't show up for you when you need them to. And it's a hard thing to swallow, especially when it, you've never asked them for anything before.
2: And, um, it's just hard. And I don't want to give the caller any false hopes, but there are times when people panic and run and then they come back and, and they, have mm-hmm. a, they can That's tell weird. you what was going on. But you have no control over that and you can't sit and wait in hopes that that will happen. That sometimes happens, I think happens rarely, but if he's going to come back into your life, he will show up and he will have to provide you with an explanation for his behavior that is satisfying and and makes sense. But the odds of that happening are are, are very slim and you have no control over it. You can't force this guy back into your life. So move on. I mean, we keep hitting that same point, but move on. Move on.
10: Yeah. And it's hard to move on, but With her mother's illness, I think she'll at least have something to focus all her energy on.
13: Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something-year-old gay male. I was recently dating someone for about 14 months, also in his 30s. I was suddenly dumped by him, blindsided by this. There were no warning signs, as far as I could tell. As a 30-something-year-old gay man, I'm used to seeing warning signs, and I know uh, what they are. Not only were things going well, others, including his friends and mine, were also surprised. We were often told we seemed like such a great and happy couple. And even after the breakup, several people remarked on how odd it seemed, because we had always seemed to get along so well. He admitted to me that he made this this decision to break up with me less than 24 hours before doing so. We did not live together, and a few months before this happened, he had wanted to buy a house for the two of us he made this decision quickly and impulsively we both decided in the end this was a bad idea i told him i thought it was too soon and that we should wait a couple of years until i can be part owner of the house with him i noticed prior to him breaking up with me i was bringing up the idea of a house again also now that he's single i believe he may be looking to date other people already and it's only been two weeks my question is what do you think is wrong with him, if anything? Doesn't this seem odd?
2: I guess this is kind of the same question. It is. House purchase, real estate takes the place of cancer, and I guess that's a better problem to have, but it's the same issue. I got dumped. I don't understand why. Why, why, why? Isn't this weird? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it hurts, but you got dumped.
10: Yeah. Like that's kind of basically what I have to say. There is no explanation, like is it weird? Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird, and especially after fourteen months, um which is not forever, but it's long enough that you feel like you are really getting to know someone it, it uh, you're blind you've been blindsided, but he doesn't want to be with you anymore and but
11: the guy uh, said,
2: the guy six months ago, however long ago, was contemplating buying a house for them to live in together. This sometimes happens in, you know, 14 month, two year relationships where uh-huh. the, someone will get dumped and they'll be like, wait, but 10 months ago, you were talking about the trip you wanted to take in five years. 10 months ago, you were talking about wanting to have kids together. And people can't square what they were hearing from this person 10 months ago with having been dumped by this person now. And the squaring process is pain, you know, it hurts because you have to say, well, they obviously, Don't feel for me now the way they did then. Their feelings changed.
10: Yeah, and you like, I I, I hate romance and love. No, I don't. I love love. But you spend so much time trying to understand the distance between let's buy a house together and I don't want to be with you anymore. And it's an exhausting thing. I hope that this man can save himself that pain and exhaustion and just chalk it up to another asshole Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, the way people i just wish people would be better about leaving relationships Uh, not that there is a perfect way there's no way to make it okay if it's one-sided and not mutual but i wish people would just have a sense of ethics about them
2: about leaving them about how to leave them
10: About leaving, like, yeah, to not leave unexpectedly, like,
2: Mm -hmm.
10: I just wish there was a better way. And I don't, and I don't even have a a suggestion for what that better way looks like, but I know what it doesn't look like. And I think it doesn't look like just disappearing after 14 months.
2: Or when um, your girlfriend's mom gets a cancer diagnosis.
10: Correct. Like, on the um, spectrum of like ways to leave your partner, these are not good ways. These are very, very bad ways to do it, and there are better ways. There's never going to be the right way, but there are better ways. And that's important. I just
2: get more people with that. There is never going to be the right way because I get calls from people where, you know, he dumped me by tax. That's not okay. He dumped me in person. That's not okay. He dumped me without explanation. That's not okay. The explanation he gave me or she gave me when they dumped me was unsatisfactory, not okay. People just don't want to be broken up with. By someone that they are still attached to. And however you get dumped, it's never going to be good enough because you didn't think you should be dumped to begin with. Yep. Like getting fired from a job that you thought you were doing well at, like, I can't understand why I got fired. Mm-hmm. Well, you got fired and maybe you're never going to understand it. And you will have to like the previous caller move on.
10: Yep. And, and he will move on and he will find someone with whom he can build a life and find a home and, it will. It'll
2: be better. It will be. Roxanne Gay, advice columnist and New York Times bestselling author of *Hunger* and *Bad Feminist*, uh, and also an op-ed contributor uh, and just a, a terrific public intellectual and a huge voice on, on the national scene right now. And I, as a working long, working so many years in the advice racket, I'm just thrilled to see you degrade yourself by joining us in the uh, Q&A <laughs> format. <laughs> How often is Ask Roxanne going to appear in the New York Times?
10: I don't know. It's open-ended.
2: Like so many of my callers.
10: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. But I, I hope for quite some time.
2: I've been out at it 26 years. Advice columns, they have legs. They had to pry Ann Landers' advice column out of her cold, dead hands. There's no reason, once you start, that you ever have to stop.
10: Wow, you've been in the game forever. I didn't realize
2: it was that long. Yeah, 26 years. Oh, my God. My advice column is old enough to drink. Yeah, it's, it's old enough to run for Congress. <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Roxanne, and congratulations on the new column, and I look forward to reading it because I'm not just a advice columnist. I am, like you, a f- rabid fan of the genre, and I read everyone's advice columns, and I loved your first installment, and I, I can't wait to read more.
10: Oh,
2: thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate that.
0: Hey, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old bi lady, and I've been seeing this guy for about five months, Um, and he's really great. Uh, We have a strong connection, and it's it's made me feel romantically fulfilled in a way that I didn't really think was possible for me, which has been refreshing, and it's made me really happy. There's one weird issue, and it's his boss. He's got an awesome job that allows him to travel a lot, and he also works a lot of variety events. He and his boss have a professional and a personal relationship that I honestly don't understand, but I'm doing my best to try. They're good friends as well as employer-employee. He describes their relationship as a Liz Lemon, Jack Donaghy type situation from 30 Rock, uh, where he's Liz and she's Jack. And like Jack Donaghy, his boss is incredibly wealthy, like ridiculously so. I've never seen so much extravagant wealth in my life. But here's the problem. She doesn't like me. We've had only a few encounters, but uh, in all but one of them, she's been incredibly rude to me. She, like I will try to make conversation with her, and she will not even acknowledge that I'm speaking. Um, and she has said insulting things to my boyfriend about me, and he defends me and tells her that she's being mean and unreasonable, which I appreciate they had a bit of a fight about it and she confessed that she gets upset when her friends start dating new people or getting married because then they stop spending time with her and she admitted that that was uh, not a good quality in her she admitted that was not a supportive friend of her and i guess that she said she'd stop but she kind of didn't but the whole thing just kind of weirds me out like she's his boss why is her nose so far into our relationship but i know that she's an important part of his life So I'm trying my best to be really supportive of it. And I want to get along with her, but I'm just, I'm so uncomfortable when I'm around her. I know this weird issue she's had with me uh, or has with me puts a strain on him. And I, I want us to be able to get along so that he's more comfortable and that I can be more included in his life. But I just don't know how to be supportive of this weird relationship that I don't understand, especially when she's so unfriendly to me in person. I've tried talking to him about it, um, my feelings of discomfort, and he says, I haven't made much of an effort to reach out to her either, which I guess I can admit is true, but partly because I'm so fucking nervous around her. It's just partly because I feel like she has so much power here because she's his employer, and she's also fucking rich as hell, and she kind of throws that around. It's gotten to the point where I start to feel uncomfortable when he mentions her or texts her, Even though I know it's about completely harmless things like work or events that they're working coming up. But I guess I would just love some advice on how to navigate this weird situation and be supportive of my boyfriend and our relationship. Um, How to feel more comfortable with this whole thing.
2: Your boyfriend isn't the only one out there. In a situation like this, according to CNN, CNN reports a work spouse is a co-worker of the opposite sex with whom you have a close platonic relationship. In many ways, these relationships can mirror a real marriage. According to 2007 survey from vault.com, 23% of workers reported that they had a work spouse. So your boyfriend isn't the only one out there who has this kind of oddly intimate platonic working relationship with someone that feels or looks to others much like a marital relationship and feeling that and seeing that if you're the girlfriend or spouse of someone who's in one of those work relationships, that can be super duper awkward. Now I'm going to give you some advice that I don't really want to give you. And I hate giving you because I hate it that we live in a world and at a time and in a plutocracy and a cacistocracy where the rich get every goddamn thing that they want. But the boss has unpacked for you. The boss has told you, told your boyfriend what it is about your presence in his life that she finds threatening and why she's unpleasant to people who are close to her, people that she employs, and a lot of obscenely wealthy people have no real friends. They have dependents of all sorts. She's told you both why she's acting the way she's acting, why she treats you the way she treats you, because when she gets close to someone that she employs or not and they get into a romantic relationship or marry, they have less time for her. And she sees less of them. So she regards you as a threat. And she's going to continue to regard you as a threat so long as you aren't her very good friend too. Kills me to say that. You need to strategize with your boyfriend. How long is he going to have this job? Is this a job he's going to have for the rest of his fucking life? Does he want to work for this insanely wealthy woman forever? Or is there a window? Is there a horizon where... There's going to be a conclusion to their professional relationship. And so not having a great and close and personal friendship with you too won't be a problem. But right now it's a problem. So your best bet to de-escalate this situation and to make your boyfriend's work relationship copacetic and not to put your boyfriend in a position where he feels consciously or subconsciously that he's facing a choice between his employment, his income, and his girlfriend. You need to buddy up to this woman a little bit. You need to, not because you should have to, but because strategically it might be in your best interest and in your boyfriend's best interest and in best interest of your relationship, make an effort, like your boyfriend said, to be friendly to this person in the teeth of her unpleasantness to you, to wear it down. Or you can go to war, you can stand your ground, and you can put your boyfriend in a situation where he feels like he's going to have to choose, and there's no guarantee that he'll choose you But I think you should bring your boyfriend in on this. I think this should be a plot that you both hatch together, not to kill her and steal her money, but for you to have a relationship with her that makes her feel like even if you and your boyfriend continue to get closer, she's not going to lose anything. Because if we know anything about the super wealthy in America right now, they can't stand to lose anything ever. Not saying this is the way it should be, but this right now for you and your boyfriend, it's kind of the way that it is. It would gall me to have to do it. It galls me to advise you to do it. I hope your boyfriend has his resume together and there is coming soon a termination date for this work relationship with his kind of toxic sounding asshole, super wealthy boss.
1: Hi, my name is Ashley. I am 26, about to be 27 in a couple of months. And my question is my boyfriend, he loves to travel. He's very adventurous. And he wants to, we've been together for about a year and six months, and we want to plan our first trip together. We never were able to do it as a couple, but now that we have a little extra money, we want to put it for our first trip. And he wants to experience a bus ride with me. Now, I've taken buses to different states before, but only for college. We want to both go to Pennsylvania, but here's the dilemma. I would rather just take the bus and rent a car and go to a hotel, but he's very like the type of person that would take bus and walk everywhere. Now that's unrealistic because you don't know where the bus is going to drop you. I still live with my parents, and my mom can really throw her opinion out there to the point where you feel like you have to take what she says, or else you know it's that um, sense of feeling like you just don't want to disappoint your parents. Well, I told my mom that. My boyfriend wants to plan this trip, and she said that bus is out of the question. You don't know where the bus is going to take you. It could take you into a very ghetto area that is unsafe, and she obviously is worried. And I get where she's coming from, I guess, but I also don't want to disappoint my boyfriend. He's very gone ho on this whole like traveling on a bus and even possibly staying overnight on a bus one day and actually traveling and doing things, kind of hitchhiker kind of thing. But, you know, I want to be safe as well. I don't know what to do. I mean, my question is, how should I plan this trip where it makes my boyfriend happy, but also bring some ease to my mom and my dad? I want to be able to fulfill my boyfriend's needs, but also feel like I'm pleasing not only myself, I guess, and my and my parents. I don't want to feel like I'm disappointing anybody.
2: Remove your parents and their concerns from this equation. You are 26 going on 27. That means you're an adult and you get to make your own choices. And it doesn't sound like as an independent adult, you would choose to gallivant around the country on a bus. You expressed hesitation and concerns about riding around on a bus or hitchhiking Bring those to your boyfriend. That's what matters here, not what mom and dad think. If you're comfortable traveling around the country on a bus and doing a little hitchhiking, then you are absolutely free to do that. You're an adult and it's your own money and you have a traveling companion that you'd like to go with. But if you're not comfortable, don't in the conversation with your boyfriend downplay your own concerns and your own hesitations and inflate or play up your parents' concerns and frustrations. Take responsibility for how you feel about this. I could detect early in the call, you weren't so psyched about this idea. Now, maybe your boyfriend has set you at ease, maybe hearing him talk about it. Maybe the fact that he's done this kind of traveling in the past convince you that, yeah, maybe this is something you could see yourself doing. It might be an adventure, it might be a lark, sounds like hell to me, but different strokes are different folks. Then go, but if you're pointing to your parents and their objections and your mom and her objections. So that you don't have to be in conflict with your boyfriend. So you can throw up your hands and say, well, I'm helpless. My mommy won't let me go. That's not going to play. You're a fucking adult. This is your money, your life, your time, your boyfriend. If you tell him I can't go because my mom's upset, you're telling him I'm not old enough or mature enough to be in a relationship. If you tell him I don't want to go, that might or definitely will create conflict in your relationship. But it's unavoidable conflict. And one of the ways in which you determine whether it's Someone is the right person for you to be with is how you resolve conflict, how you process that. Maybe that means a trip with some long bus rides and then a rental car when you arrive where you're arriving. And your mother's concerns about bus stations all being in terrible neighborhoods, that actually was true in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, not so much now as urban areas have become Safer and safer, particularly New York City and Chicago. The bus stations – I remember the bus stations in the 70s and 80s were Hieronymus Bosch paintings and nightmares. Not the case now, so don't let your mother's concerns, which were probably informed by reruns of Beretta, prevent you from – and there is a pop culture reference that you're all Googling right now. Prevent you from living your best life and going on an adventure with your boyfriend if you want to go on that adventure with your boyfriend. I wonder, though, if you do want to go on that adventure with your boyfriend.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in regards to your episode 590 and the woman that was talking about her creeper boyfriend of her mom. And you gave great advice, but I think one thing you left out is that these creepers like to have things be secret. And I think that without having to tell her mom all her concerns, she could just bring her mom to the conversation. So, For example, the first time she PayPaled her money... She should just call her mom and say, hey, I just got that money. I'm not sure if it was from you and him or just him. But, you know, when you see him, thank him for PayPaling the money. And if he texts you, just respond back uh, and loop your mom in on that group text. You know, add, add your mom into the text and say, thanks for the invite to the pool. Mom, what day are you going? And just make every conversation with him a three-way call. And I think that that will be a good way to make sure all of this is happening in public.
11: Hey, Dan, just calling in about a caller from the February 13th show. Uh, who A couple of men dressed up in baby doll outfits and was wondering what to tell their child. Um, this actually sounds like someone I know. And I can tell you that what they are doing is not a pre-sexual thing to warm up or anything like that. They are expressing who they feel they are. These are men who worked in conservative areas of life that were never able to dress the way they wanted to dress. And they can now because they're retired and they don't have the pressures. I've seen pictures posted on Facebook of my friend. This is how he dresses 24-7 because it's who he thinks he is and how he feels he wants to present himself to the world. So she should tell her child this is a man being honest to himself and to the rest of us as to who he is and how he wants to express himself. And there doesn't have to be any sex involved at all because this dress is not a precursor to sex for him, most likely. I want to leave a message
10: for the caller on episode 590 whose boyfriend is addicted to crystal. I was that person 15 years ago. I was a mess. I was shooting up. I was having a lot of indiscriminate sex and lying to my friends and I was a disaster. I needed to hear from my friends that uh, they didn't want to be around me anymore. They couldn't stand the way I looked. They couldn't stand that I canceled, uh, you know, engagements with them. I was a disaster. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Say it lovingly, say it with care, help him get the help he needs. But if you won't get help, there's nothing you can do about it. Crystal is a very powerful thing. And
5: kicking it was the hardest thing I ever did in my entire life. And I'm 53 years old. So help him do it. If he can't or won't, then
10: leave him. It's that simple.
2: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. If you are shirtless, we can fix that. Go to SavageLovecast.com. Click on shop. We have a new Savage Lovecast t-shirt for Savage Lovecast fans to make it easier for you guys to spot each other when you're out and about or at the gym. Go to SavageLovecast.com and click on shop. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Roxanne Gay on Twitter at RGay. And follow Caitlin Doty on Twitter at The Good Death. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian. And me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy we will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for that.